Macworld Podcast number 131 for August 23rd, 2008, sponsored by MYOB, Small Business Accounting and Point-of-Sale Software, helping you to mind your own business smarter. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Breen. The big news this week is Adobe's announcement of Creative Suite 4, known to its close personal friends as CS4. Executive Editor Philip Michaels and Senior Editor Jackie Dove attended Adobe's CS4 announcement earlier this week and returned with short interviews with Adobe representatives who highlighted some of CS4's new features. We'll hear those interviews in our first segment. Following that, I'm joined by Rogamibus Paul Kafasis to discuss the state of Apple's App Store, focusing on what some have termed capricious rejections of a couple of seemingly worthwhile applications. I have a copy of one of those applications called Podcaster running on my iPhone. This is an application that allows you to directly stream and download podcasts to your iPhone or iPod Touch. And I have to say that while it has a couple of bugs, it's a very useful application and one whose functionality is definitely not duplicated on the iPhone or iPod Touch. I provided a look at Podcaster on Macworld.com, and you can check out the show notes for that link. Before we get to all that, a little news and commentary. At the risk of being immodest, I'd like to point to an article I wrote for yesterday's playlist blog titled iPhone plus remote app equals houseful of music. This is an easy to follow how to guide to streaming music from your iTunes library through your house and controlling the music and the speakers it plays on with an iPod touch or iPhone via Apple's free remote application, which is available from the App Store. The gist is that if you have a Mac, at least one wireless device the Mac can stream music to, and that would be an Airport Express base station or Apple TV, and an iPhone or iPod Touch, you can walk around the house, choose albums, playlists, or songs directly from your iPhone or iPod, and switch sets of speakers on or off. And this is astoundingly cool. This kind of capability, and a whole lot more, including internet radio and subscription music service, has been offered by hardware products, including Sonos and Squeezebox systems. But now a lot of that power lies in your hand and from gear that you might already own. Though we burn up around 1,200 words to tell you how to do this, it's not terribly difficult. Mostly you have to configure iTunes so that it looks for remote speakers attached to airport base stations and Apple TVs, as well as to tell it to look for the remote application on your iPhone or iPod Touch. After that, it's simply a matter of configuring the Airport Express and or Apple TV to stream music from your computer's iTunes library, establishing a connection between the remote application and your Mac, and then choosing songs and remote speakers from your iPhone or iPod Touch. Like I said, astoundingly cool. One thing I don't mention in the article, but should, is that remote is a huge improvement over Apple's remote control for operating the Apple TV. It's easy to find the media on the Apple TV and play it without all the delays inherent in moving through the menus and screens on the Apple TV. If, like me, you're an Apple TV devotee, the remote application is a godsend. I'd love to see Apple take this a step further where you can see the complete Apple TV interface on your iPhone or iPod Touch, meaning you can navigate through movies, TV shows, and podcasts on the iTunes Store and initiate rentals and purchases from the remote app. There are times when I'm somewhere else in the house and I want to read a movie or browse the store's TV listing, and it's a minor pain to have to plant myself in front of the Apple TV, turn everything on, and then go through the process of renting or purchasing or browsing the contents of the iTunes store. I'd love to be able to do this just on my iPhone, and when I find something I like, tap a purchase or buy button and have it download to the Apple TV. 
but maybe that'll be left to another update. And now Philip Michaels and Jackie Dove talk with Adobe about Creative Suite 4. Creative pros have a lot to digest this week as Adobe announced its massive Creative Suite 4 upgrade. Adobe is calling this the largest software release in the company's history, which is an impressive feat considering that they said the same thing about Creative Suite 3 released just 18 months ago. What goes into CS4? Well, it's comprised of 13 products, 14 technologies, and 7 services, according to Adobe. All told... The applications form six suites culminating in the $2,499 Master Collection that contains the whole shebang. The changes in Creative Suite 3 cover three areas. There are the time-saving features and enhancements. There's integration between the various applications that make up the suite. Specifically, this is the first release cycle in which the Macromedia technologies that Adobe acquired in its merger with Macromedia have been part of the development cycle for the entire cycle, so you'll see a lot of integration of things like Flash. Also, innovation is a, a recurring theme throughout the CS4 updates. Adobe talked about these features at great length at a webcast taping this week at its San Francisco offices. We'll include the link to that webcast in our show notes. And afterwards, Senior Reviews Editor Jackie Dove was able to grab a few Adobe executives and ask them a few questions about the changes in CS4. First up is Leah Hickman, the Director of Product Marketing and Product Management for the Creative Suite Web Tools. Jackie talked to her about integration among the many apps in CS4. Can you describe to us the ways in which Adobe has moved ahead in linking the CS apps together for a unified interface? Sure. Well, um, CS4 has been really significant for us because one of uh, our goals with the release is around integration. And so we've really focused on making sure a lot of the applications have the same exact user experience. So if you look at the video suite, for example, the interface is exactly the same in all of the products so that uh, designers can move back and forth between them. The same is true with the web suite and the design suite as well. And so part of the thinking behind that is as a user is um, uses a primary tool, we wanted to make it as easy as possible for them to extend their skills to other areas. So you'll see a lot of similarities between Fireworks and Dreamweaver, for example, as well as Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign, really making sure that the interface was something that they were familiar with and that they could easily go back and forth. It looks like Flash capabilities are being integrated into most of the CS4 apps. Can you describe how and why Flash is becoming such a central point of interest for the suite? Well, we're finding more and more designers are wanting to move cross-media, and interactive is definitely a place that they want to move. Flash is obviously core for them to do that. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that people who are really familiar with print have the capabilities to easily move into interactive and basically take their assets and immediately export into Swift, like the demo you saw here as part of the webcast. Um, Another key area is video and interactive. So we're seeing a lot of people moving back and forth between video and interactive for the web and making sure that there are similar animation models between After Effects and Flash are making that really easy for them. Turning our attention to some of the individual apps that make up the CS4 update, Jackie then spoke to John Loyacono. He's the Senior Vice President of the Creative Solutions Business Unit, and he spoke specifically about the changes in Photoshop CS4. Can you please lay out the updates in the Photoshop interface between this version and the previous version? So I think some of the interface designs, we have some um, things we've done to make it a lot easier for people uh, from a palette 
perspective. We actually changed some of the pallets to make them a lot more conducive to uh, the workflows that people talk about. Uh, we talk about some of the major feature enhancements around things like um, content-aware scaling, around uh, taking advantage of the new graphics processors that are out there, the NVIDIA and ATI processors now. that We have a lot of performance enhancements that done underneath in Photoshop to make it way, way faster than we've had previously. In addition, we have things like depth of field viewing where actually uh, we can actually take an image or sev several images uh, that the naked eye would only see a portion of the image in focus, take multiple images, and then condense that down and take the entire image and turn that into an in-focus image overall. What would you consider the most important and groundbreaking features in Photoshop CS4? Uh, the things I see that are most compelling, again, is things like content-aware scaling. This is where I can actually scale an image, um, and the algorithms within the application are able to determine what's important in this image. Normally, when I shrink an image, uh, let's say I have a person sitting in a forest, and as I shrink the image, of course, the person shrinks down. With content-aware scaling, I'm able to actually shrink the image. It will keep the person in correct perspective, correct proportions, and yet shrink everything else around it. So, for example, if you're trying to shrink uh, an image that you want to have for a mobile device, I can actually have two people. I can shrink the space between them or around them and leave them proportionally correct. That's one of the breakthrough features. There are other features that are things like performance enhancements that we've made where people can take advantage of the graphics processors and see speed enhancements you know, anywhere from uh, you know, 20% to five-fold faster. For the record, can you explain to our audience the reasons why Photoshop will not be available in the 64-bit version um, and for the Mac as it is for Windows and what effect that will have on users, if any? So we certainly would have loved to have had that technology in place. Uh, the ability for us to have the right uh, tools coming from Apple, uh, frankly, would cause us delay. So Apple's decision and when they disclosed that uh, directional change uh, to us, when it came in so late in the game, uh, enable, uh, did not enable us to actually uh, support 64-bit on the Mac platform, whereas, unfortunately, we were able to do it on the Windows platform um, because we had access to that and had a, a clear roadmap of where that was coming from. And so when do you expect that to be available in 64-bit for the Mac? So again, we're now working with Apple to race to try to make that happen as soon as we can. We have not yet put a schedule together to tell you when specifically that will be shipping. Let's talk specifically about the extended version. What can you do now in Photoshop CS4 Extended that you couldn't do with the previous version? So again, some of the things we've done in that space are related to 3D so, uh, and video. So uh, specifically in 3D, for example, we now have new uh, capabilities to actually do stereoscopic output, right, where I can – stereoscopic output is where I can actually take a 3D image and actually break it into the uh, red and blue spectrums where actually I put on 3D glasses and actually can have a 3D experience. That's now built in a one-click option within Photoshop Extended. In addition, we have other 3D capabilities where I can actually take an image and literally wrap that image around a 3D object, be it a square, a sphere, a triangle. So I can take literally a 2D image and wrap it around a 3D image and then actually rotate and view that image and then paint in 3D right within the application. Next up, Jackie spoke with Adam Pratt, the senior solutions engineer for the Creative Suite. Specifically, they talked about InDesign. What are the most important and compelling new features in InDesign CS4? Yeah, uh, I'd say one of the first things that uh, jumps to mind is some of the new live pre-flight technology in InDesign uh, because the ability to find potential errors in your printing process early on instead of at the last minute is a huge time saver, money saver um, 
just removes a lot of headaches. So live pre-flight is significant. Uh, I'd say one of the other things that's huge is the integration between InDesign and Flash because there's a lot of people who've grown up on Adobe products. They know print inside and out, and they're anxious to do something new and kind of expand their skill set. And the ability to export their content directly to Flash CS4 and make it more interactive for web experience is incredible. I'd like to circle back to the live pre-flight feature. Could you tell us exactly what that does and why it's so important? Yeah, absolutely. So live pre-flight, the best thing about it is it's customizable and it's extensible. So we have a long list of criteria that we think are going to be important, things like certain colors, fonts, overset text, real common production issues that you can set up your own custom profiles for and even embed those in your files. So it's always checking real time. Uh, But it's extensible. So if partners want to look for custom certain specific things that they're concerned about, they can extend it as well. Great. And I want to also follow up on your Flash description. Can you give me more of a description on how Flash is interoperable with InDesign? Yeah, so I'd say there's two big areas. Um, Built into InDesign CS4, we now have a one-click export directly to Swift. So if you want to take a multi-page document and have an interactive experience of that on the web, complete with page turning and so on, it's literally just a click. If you want to take it even further, you can use the new XFL format to take it into Flash and add interactivity, animation, uh, maybe video, extra scripting, and really make it a more complete experience. So there's a lot of different connections there, um, and those are just two of the options. Okay. And can you talk about the new links panel and how that better manages links than the previous version of InDesign? Yeah, uh, I'd say um, the the best part about the links panel is they completely rewrote it. Um, There's certain uh, elements of it that are familiar, uh, but there's a long list of detailed information that you can get. So, for example, if somebody's working on a project, they want to dig into some details, they can sort all their files based on resolution, for example, because that's obviously going to be really important. Or they want to sift out all the RGB content so they can sort against all those criteria, and you can get a lot of details, including a preview of every individual link inside the links panel. So just a lot more information uh, when you're ready for it. And could you please explain to us the concept of conditional text and how this technique aids in producing multiple versions of a document? Yeah, so conditional text, it's almost like a kind of text style. You apply it to the text, but instead of looking a certain way, the condition is, is it visible or, or invisible? So a couple of examples might be, imagine if you're doing a catalog and you have some U.S. pricing and some U.K. pricing. Uh, you want to be able to manage just one document, but the variable would be the currency. So you could make that a conditional text attribute and turn those on and off. Another really common scenario that we see is book publishers. They're making a student version and a teacher edition of the same book, and they can just turn on and off the answers, like in a quiz, for example, and it's all just a condition of the text, and everything reflows to fit. That's great. And um, can you also tell us about some of the workspace updates, the new views, the application bar, text-based workspaces? Yeah. So in terms of interface, uh, the goal is always consistency as, as long as it makes sense. And so uh, InDesign to Flash, to you name it, uh, they all have uh, the updated uh, interface for CS4, and some of those specifics include workspaces, we, which we've had for a long time. 
The embarrassing part is not everybody finds them. And so we've made them a lot more obvious right there in the workspace. We've added new workspaces, so more configurable, easier to find, um, and more consistency across the print, the web, and the video apps. That's great. Thanks so much, Adam. Yeah, my pleasure. That was Adobe's Adam Pratt talking about InDesign. And finally, Richard Galvan is the technical product manager for Flash, and he spoke to Jackie about that app, which plays a prominent role in Creative Suite 4. Okay, so can you tell us or lay out the updates in the Flash interface between this version and the previous version? There's been some significant improvements. We uh, In Flash Sheets 3, we added kind of a new unified interface between a lot of the products like Photoshop, Illustrator, and, and Flash. In this one, we kind of looked more about how do we, how do we make that, that interface, um, I guess, easier to use. We wanted to make improvements as far as usability. And so the kind of things we looked at is, you know, are the things that we can do to make it easier to work with on multiple monitors? You know, how do we work with multiple documents better? You know, I mean, when you have multiple documents open, you know, can we switch from tab views to floating views um, easier? You know, are there easier ways for us to, optim- to uh, I guess, line up the panels? You know, also give users more choices in how they want to rearrange panels on the tool. Because, you know, no one likes to be told how to use a tool, so the people want to be able to kind of rearrange things. So we made some improvements there. Um, in Flash specifically, we added a couple of interesting little um, tidbits to our user interface. Um, a lot of the fields and text inside the panels are hot text. So when you just put your mouse over them and scroll up or down or sideways, you change the values that way. Um, and one little key, one little feature that most people are probably not going to find, but I'm, I'm going to tell you guys now, is if you click on any one of the fields and you can type in uh, arithmetic, you can actually type in like a pixel number plus 10 divided by 2, and the fields will actually calculate the values for you um, inside the UI. So um, we try to think about all the little things that people might want to do um, inside the user interface um, in this release. And what would you say are the most important new features in Flash CS4? We have some tremendous new features. Most of these features are going to be based around graphics, animation, and whiz-bang. So this release is really all about getting Flash back to its roots of animation. Probably the number one biggest feature is the new animation model. We really made, we changed the way that Flash does animations. Um, We wanted it to be easier for new users to kind of do animations and kind of get started in the tool. Um, But we also wanted um, advanced or expert animators to to be able to have more control, to have more granular control of the animation. So we've changed the animation model. On top of that, we added things like 3D. We added another feature called inverse kinematics. So you can do things like puppets, and you can do like um, natural distortions of shapes. Uh, we added a procedural modeling engine into Flash, so you can do, for example, uh, custom fills and shapes. In like, uh, it supports a uh, brush tool. Um, so I mean, that's just a, that's just kind of like the top of the iceberg of some of the new design features we added in this release. And it seems that Flash is sort of being spread throughout the entire suite. Can you tell us a little bit about the significance of Flash and how it's emerging as a program within CS4? So we can think of Flash as two different ways. We can think of Flash purely as a, as a tool that it lets you export or create content for the web. But we also think of Flash as a platform that we can run technologies on top of. So um, a lot of tools are using Flash internally to allow you to run Swifts in their tools. So, for example, some of the panels in Photoshop, some of the panels in Flash, some of the panels in Fireworks are actually built uh, using Flash. So it allows us to kind of create one panel that runs multiple products. Uh, we're also looking at ways to bring content into Flash uh, Flash, the authoring tool, is more like an aggregator. 
So we take contents from a lot, a lot of different tools, Photoshop, Illustrator, Fireworks, for example. And so all these tools are now looking at Flash as more of a native format that they can export into. InDesign and After Effects, this release, allow you to create Flash projects directly from their tools instead of having to Flash always import. So you see more and more tools either looking at Flash as a destination or looking at Flash as a platform to run some of their own panels or some of their own technologies within their tools. And finally, did you have any comments of your own about Flash, uh, about the new version that you wanted to share with the audience? Yeah, I think the the, the one thing I wanted to share with everybody is um, if you're used to hitting the F6 button to create an animation, um, you got something coming to you in this release. This is going to make it much easier and much more powerful than ever before. Well, thank you very much. Sure. Thank you very much. You can find more information about CS4 at Macworld.com. We'll have first looks of many of the applications that make up the suite, including first looks of Photoshop and InDesign that have already been posted at Macworld.com. And, of course, we'll have full reviews of the product when Creative Suite 4 ships in October. Chris, back to you. Before we get to my interview with Rogue Amoeba's Paul Kafasis, a word from our sponsor, MYOB. Are you a small business owner looking for an easy-to-set-up point-of-sale solution? Look no further. New from MYOB, the company who brings you award-winning account edge accounting software is Checkout, a point-of-sale system only for the Mac. Created with the realities of retail in mind, Checkout provides an easy-to-learn, efficient, and reliable way to make sales and manage your store. Get up and running in 15 minutes and start spending more time with your customers. Learn more at www.myob-us.com. Now Paul Kafasis and I talk developers and the App Store. I'm joined by Rogabima's Paul Kafasis, who's the developer of such outstanding tools as Audio Hijack, Airfoil, Radio Shift, and Fission. Paul has been one of the more vocal developers in regard to Apple's App Store, both praising and questioning the App Store and Apple's way of running it. Given recent issues regarding application approval, I thought this was a good time to get Paul's take on iPhone development and the App Store. And thanks very much for being here, Paul. Absolutely. Good to be here, Chris. So let's start with recent developments and work back a little bit. Recently, a couple of applications have been rejected by Apple, specifically Podcaster and Mail Wrangler, for allegedly duplicating capabilities of some of Apple's work. So what's your take on that? Uh, (laughs) I mean, there are a couple aspects to this. Uh, One is that, yeah, Apple has basically said in the letters that they've sent to these developers, uh, you're duplicating functionality, and, and that's part of the reason, or that's the reason why you've been uh, rejected for inclusion on the App Store. And the first thing to realize is that it's pretty much false. Yeah. Uh, Podcaster was an application that was designed to let you download podcasts directly to your iPhone uh, so that you could listen to stuff on the go and not need to be linked into, into iTunes. And the iPhone doesn't do this right now. Uh, iTunes itself has podcasting uh, downloading abilities, but you need to link up to the device, uh, link the device up to your computer, and so if you're on the road for a week and your computer's back at home, you can't uh, you can't sync up podcasts that way. So this isn't really functionality that's that's duplicated at all. I mean, is this just sort of a catch-all then for Apple saying, well, we may explore this someday, so stay away? You know, I'm not really sure. The first when when I first heard about Podcaster, it sounded like uh, sort of a uh, like someone who didn't really know what he was doing and, and, and had sent this out and, and it wasn't what should have gone out. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
just in as much as this sort of thing, if it had gone by a lawyer, the lawyer never would have let this get by. Yeah. Uh, a lawyer would not want you to say, you're not allowed to compete with us, so we're not including you. Um, that just raises all sorts of legal issues that Apple would probably be fine fighting, but is not something you really want to put out there. Yeah. Um, but so is it a catch-all, or is it something where they're actually planning to do this? I'm not sure. Uh, maybe they are planning to inc- incorporate podcasting functionality. But then the other example was Mail Wrangler, which uh, is something that's basically designed to let you use multiple Gmail accounts uh, within one application without needing to sign in and out. If you use Gmail within Safari, uh, within the, the web browser, you need to sign in and out of the application, uh, out of the web app, to get to different accounts. And if you use it within Mail, then you have to configure it with, ma- with Mail. So uh, this is basically for people wanting to do web mail on multiple accounts and, and not wanting to have to deal with logging in and out all the time. Uh, and again, this isn't something that, uh, that Apple's doing. And it duplicates functionality in as much as there's a mail client on the iPhone. Right. But it's, you know, it's not geared towards Gmail specifically. And, uh, and so it's, it's something where this – and for Mail Wrangler, that was only part of it, actually. They also said that uh, there, there was some – I'd have to look at it again. But there's some wording basically saying, you know, we don't want users to be confused about what mail they're using, blah, blah, blah. Uh, which also seemed a little bit ridiculous because if if someone's installing this application and and configuring it, then they know what they're doing in terms of what mail client they're using and and what uh, mail accounts they have. So I mean, the, the the first thing that that struck me on both these was just that the the reason that they gave was flat out wrong. It wasn't correct that uh, that this was that these applications were duplicating functionality. Uh, but then the you know I think the more important thing is that even if they were, it shouldn't matter. Uh, Duplicating functionality should not be a reason for not being allowed on the the iPhone store. Uh, it's not a, it's not a reason for not including other applications. I mean, there are as many people have joked. There are a dozen tip calculators and thirty Sudoku programs, and uh, you know, there's there's competition between uh, between applications that are out there. But apparently, you know, judging by these anyway, if you're competing with something Apple does, well, suddenly you're not allowed to do that. Well, yeah, and but even with Apple, there are certainly pCalc is out there. Exactly, there's there's a calc program, there are notes programs, there's right. there's plenty of programs that do compete with functionality that's right on the iPhone. So, I mean, nothing about this smells right as far as as far as the reasons that they've given, and uh, and you know as far as as far as what's been said about it. But at the same time, the podcaster rejection was, geez, two weeks ago now, yeah. I think. So it's it's something that uh, that hasn't been reversed when. When that first happened, it came out on, on like a Thursday. I think like Thursday the – I don't know, whatever day that would have been, a couple of weeks ago on Thursday. And I said, all right, well, this, this seems like something that uh, will get corrected, something that Apple will say, you know what, that was wrong. You know, we, we made the wrong call on this, and, and they'll reverse it. Uh, and you know, the weekend rolled around, and so I said, all right, maybe on Monday or Tuesday when, when uh, you know, the excrement hits the fan uh, in terms of the web – they'll realize that they need to fix this. And, and it certainly did. It was you know, pretty widely publicized on, on both Mac blogs and, and Mac websites as well as you know, some bigger websites. Right. Uh, but you know, nothing's changed as far as I'm aware in terms, of, uh, in terms of getting this program accepted. Well, it doesn't seem to be within Apple's DNA to often say, you know what, we made a mistake. Um, and, and I wonder if they're just hoping this eventually dies down and developers sort of get the clue that there are certain areas of this phone you're not going to touch, and one of them is email, and the other one is iTunes. If they want to, if they really want to do that, it seems to me to make a lot more sense just to be upfront about it. Yeah, uh, people would raise a stink about it, and they'd say, you know, we want to do this, but at least it would be clear and it would be, you know, written down, it would be in writing, and uh, basically these applications got rejected, and 
when you when you start developing for the iPhone, you sign an agreement, virtually sign an agreement, uh, that basically says, you know, I'm not allowed to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, I can't make a, a GPS application that does turn by turn directions. I can't uh, I can't make a VoIP client that works over the cell network, uh, and all that. And and then there's then there's some other things that are in there, but these applications followed both the letter and spirit of all these agreements, mm-hmm. and yet were still rejected. So it's something where the developers, you know, had a good faith idea that they'd be included because they were making useful applications that, uh, you know, shouldn't have affected Apple negatively. But because Apple decided, hey, we don't want you competing with us, or, you know, whatever the real reason is, uh, they were ultimately rejected. And so, you know, if, if, the, if the idea is, hey, stay away from email, Apple should just say, hey, stay away from email so people don't waste their time and, you know, months worth of development time uh, making these applications that then at the very last minute, basically, are told you can't be in the store. So generally, how chilling an effect will this have on development? I mean, there are some people who are making a lot of money from the App Store that they wouldn't have been making otherwise. Is it enough to just take that money and keep your mouth shut? Well, I mean, I think it that's a phrase I've used, a chilling effect in terms of development, because I think it will scare off developers. I think it already has. Uh, Fraser Spears, who does uh, Exposure, uh, Flickr, uh, Flickr uh, it's, what is it, Flickr export on the Mac and then Exposure on the iPhone, uh, basically tools for working with Flickr, uh, has said right up front that he's not going to make any more applications for the App Store. Uh, he's going to continue supporting Exposure, but uh, beyond that, he's not interested in developing for it any longer. And, uh, you know, there are plenty of other developers uh, who I've talked to who, you know, are just sort of worried that they're going to invest their time and not be allowed on the store. Uh, and because the store is the only way to get on the phone, then if you're not allowed in the store, then you're just SOL. Right. Uh, so, I mean, you, you, yeah, you make a good point that, yeah, there's plenty of people out there who've, you know, released sales numbers and they're astronomical. Uh, you know, they're tens or hundreds of thousand dollars within just a few months. And that's fantastic. But at the same time, it's a pretty big risk if you're saying, you know, I'm making something that's a little bit edgy, you know, compared to a game. Uh, some of this stuff is, is games that have made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And if you're making something that's, you know, more of an application and, and may sort of uh, start to be what Apple's doing. You know, Apple's not really making any games. Uh, if you're doing something that is closer to what Apple does, then you have to worry, are they going to let me on the store? And if you spend six months or nine months making an application and, and then all of a sudden you find, hey, we're not allowed on the store, uh, you've wasted that time and there's, at this point, no recourse for you. So I think it's something where, at least in terms of businesses, uh, you really have to consider whether you can afford to devote that time and and you know analyze the risk of will you be included or not. The biggest problem, though, is that we can't really know what that risk is. We don't know what what your odds are. Uh, like I said, these two applications that we're that we're talking about, Podcaster and, and Mail Wrangler, both. You know, I'm I'm certain that the developers felt that they were making useful applications that would be accepted and they wouldn't have any issues. So it's not as if uh, somebody was doing something that was, you know, so far out there. Uh, some of the rejections we had earlier, I think, uh, personally, I'd love to have still seen them in the store. I don't think anything should be getting rejected. But I think if, uh, if the developers were being honest with themselves, they'd say, you know, I didn't necessarily expect this to get in the store or stay in the store. Uh, something like the I Am Rich application where, mm-hmm. you know, it's a $1,000 piece of junk that doesn't actually do anything. Uh, it got in there and then it got pulled and... And whether that was the right call or not, I think the developer didn't really, one, spend any time on it, and two, expect it to stay in there. Right. Uh, but this stuff is, you know, real useful applications that somebody devoted a lot of time to and, you know, just can't get into the store now for whatever reason that Apple's saying. And, you know, you can't really take that risk if you're a business and, and you're, you know, if you've got a bottom line that you have to, that you have to meet and, and you say, you know, it's going to cost us this much to develop and, 
if we're not certain we're going to be able to get there, get into the store, then we don't know that we can recoup that. And so it's not really a risk that, that everyone can take. And, and I think really you want to have an ecosystem where everyone is willing to, to take the risks and, and they don't have to worry about a risk like, hey, I developed a great application, but Apple won't let me ship it. Right. Well, what's the general tenor among developers now? I mean, do people feel like they've been pushed far enough and we're going to band together and say no more apps until we get this cleared up? Or is it pretty much sort of like we're stuck and so, you know, do what you want with us, but we're not going to be happy about it? Well, I don't think it's either of those, really. I think I don't think you're ever going to see – well, it's too big a community. There's thousands of developers right. on the iPhone now, and they're not all Mac developers. There are a lot of you know, uh, vertical markets where it's something you know, not, completely un, unrelated to you know, third-party software, really. Um, and there's games and, and applications. And so there's, it's too big a market as far as everyone banding together and saying, you know what? Enough is enough. We're not developing anymore. There's, there's no way that's going to happen, especially, mm-hmm. as, especially when the money keeps flowing. Right. But I think with the podcaster rejection and, and now with Mail Wrangler as well, you've seen a whole lot more, you know, uh, just outspoken developers uh, beyond myself. Uh, Fraser Spears, another one that I mentioned. Uh, Will Shipley of uh, Delicious Monster had a post uh, on his weblog uh, a day or two ago that basically said, you know, this is this censorship doesn't work and, and this system doesn't work. It's not good for Apple. It's not good for the customer. It's not good for anybody, really. And, you know, echoing pretty much the same things that a lot of us have been saying. Uh, so, you know, these are, these are hopefully, you know, people realize these are fairly big names, uh, coming out and saying, you know, this isn't a good system and and it needs to change. Uh, so I don't know, I I don't think it's something where, you know, everyone's just continuing as they were and just taking their beating. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think you're never going to stop development entirely or even close to it. Uh, I think, you know, the best thing that, that we can do is, is talk about it as I'm doing right now and as other people have done and, and hopefully, you know, people get the message and, and customers understand that. Apple's sort of uh, preventing developers from doing things, and Apple understands that they're doing this and, and starts to realize, hey, maybe this isn't such a good idea, and, and maybe you know, an open market makes a lot more sense. Well, I was going to ask you that. I mean, if you were running the App Store, what would you change? Well, I had a post on this about ooh, two months ago. I, I, I write for a site called the, the iPhone blog for mm-hmm. O'Reilly. And I had a post on this called One Little Article. And I was actually really sort of proud of this post because I thought it raised a really good point that hadn't been raised at the point, uh, at that point. And, uh, you know, that idea was that there's a difference between the App Store and an App Store. Right. If Apple has an App Store, they can do whatever they want with it. Uh, basically, that means they have it on the phone, and that's the easiest way to get software, and they can feature whatever they like, and they can take a 90% cut if they want to, as long as developers have some other way of getting on the phone. It doesn't have to be the easiest thing in the world, but uh, you know, just installing software right through iTunes. If you could download a piece of software and just drag and drop it onto iTunes or double-click it and it would open in iTunes and it would say, hey, do you want to install this on your iPhone the next time you plug it in, uh, that would be great. Then we'd be in charge of our own marketing, our own sales, whatever we liked, and you know, it would be pretty much just like the way it is on the Mac where if people want to download software, they can, and, and Apple doesn't really have anything to say about it. They have their own download site, uh, apple.com slash downloads, I think, is the, is the current link to it. And, and there's plenty of software featured on there. But if you have software that they don't want to feature, it's not the end of the world because you can get customers to find you other ways. Uh, right now, if you're a developer for the iPhone, the only way to get your software out there is, is through this store. And I think, so I think, you know, as far as 
Well, I, th- I think even from Apple's perspective, I think this should be the best bet because it lets you have full control over what you want. And you can say – you can reject a lot more in this case. You can say, you know what? Uh, we don't want your notes application or even your calculator application. We want people to be happy with what we have. But if you want to sell it, you know, go do, deal with it on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that way they can be just as restrictive as they want. And you know, people won't be happy about it, I'm sure. You know, no one's ever going to be happy in terms of being censored and not being allowed in the store. But at least they'll be able to make a living or you know, make an attempt at making a living because they'll, there, will, there will be another way to get the software on the phone. Uh, so, I mean, that's sort of what I've been hoping for and, and you know, angling for, for for months since, since the announcement, really, uh, back in March when you know, it, it became clear that uh, the only way to get software on there would be through Apple. Um, that never really sat well with me. And, and I think a lot of people said, well, you know, hopefully it'll work. Hopefully it'll be a good system. And hopefully Apple will do things right. And I think we're starting to see that that's not really what's happening, that Apple hasn't, done, hasn't really done much in terms of keeping the quality level high. I think that was so, something that some people expected, that they would reject a lot of stuff and, mm-hmm. and only have really high-quality applications in there. And I think if you run through the store, you can find a whole lot of stuff that's, you know, maybe it's got potential, but it's not there yet. Uh, and then I think also they've, at the same time, they haven't let everything in. So it's, it's not really clear what sort of system they're working for uh, in terms of what they want in the store. It seems like they, they sort of evaluate things one at a time, and, and that doesn't really work as a system. You need a guiding principle for what should be in there. Yeah, well, it does seem that they're, um, they're kind of making it up as they go along. I mean, they've got the infrastructure there, and it works much better now with 2.1. But as you say, here we have these sort of very broad rejections about duplication, which is nonsense. And then sort of the people who um, who like Apple a lot then start searching through the SDK and say, no, 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 there's this little clause in here, you know, that stretches the imagination to, to well, say, it's, oh, it's a what. CYA. It's a, yeah, it's a cover your ass clause, if I can say that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it, yeah, it basically says, you know, at any point we can do whatever we want. And of course they can. And, and you know, it's their store and, and that's how it's going to work. But like I say, developers need to have a good faith belief that, if they make a useful product that's not doing anything illegal or, you know, obviously inflammatory, as these applications that we're talking about aren't, you know, they're useful products that are doing something useful for users and, and users want to have them, uh, developers need to know that those will be accepted. And, and the fact that Apple had this clause in there doesn't really mean anything. I mean, people, it means they can get away with it, certainly. But right. developers didn't think it would be used this way. And, and if it is going to be used this way, then we really need to change our game plan and, and go about things a lot differently. Well, short of Apple suddenly waking up in the morning and saying, oh, you know, you're right, or, or a lawsuit finally that, that comes about because of anti-competitive behavior, how likely is Apple's behavior to change? Well, I mean, the thing is that, you know, when the iPhone first came out, uh, what, about a little over a year ago, uh, Apple said, oh, and here's how you're going to make apps. You're going to make web apps, and it's going to be great. And some people said, okay, that's cool. And a lot of us said, that's junk. <laughs> you've, got, you've got a phone that runs OS X, and you're talking about how it's Cocoa-based, and we're all Mac developers, and we want to make software for this. Let us make you know, real desktop type applications. Web apps are great for a lot of things, but when you don't have an internet connection, they're not doing you any good. Mm-hmm. You can't really access them that way. And, and there's all sorts of other problems. And, and so, you know, uh, at that time I, I was vocal about this and, and a lot of other people were vocal about it. And, and we caught a lot of flack from people who said, no, web apps are great. They're the future. Listen to Steve Jobs. He knows what he's talking about. And, you know, sure enough, what, six, seven months later, uh, nine months later, I guess, we're told, well, here's the SDK. And, and even just a few months later, we're told an SDK will eventually come. 
so, you know, it's something where I don't know if that was the plan all along. Some people think it was. Some people think that the outcry that was heard was what uh, sort of propelled that along. Uh, but I think talking about it and, and sort of just, you know, getting it out there is, is certainly something that can only help in terms of the long run, in terms of getting Apple to change their mind and, and hopefully realize that this is better for everyone if we, if we have an open system. As far as how likely that is, uh, I don't know. I mean, Android, uh, Google just shipped their first Android phone today. I haven't really looked at it too much, but uh, that's, that's certainly another place where Apple's going to start to see some pressure. Um, Google's huge, and they're working with a whole bunch of carriers and uh, or a whole bunch of handset manufacturers, and I think they you know, have the ability to at least uh, change the game a little bit. Apple's certainly doing well with the iPhone, and it's going to continue to be popular. The, the Android is not going to kill the iPhone by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it can uh, sort of prove to Apple that they need to open up more or they're going to start to lose developers. Exactly, and, and you anticipated my next question, which is uh, what is the buzz in the developer community? Are, you know, Particularly those who are a little frustrated with Apple, do they look at Android and then think, well, maybe my efforts are better spent here? Well, I mean, for me, it's something that Android doesn't really interest me in as much as I've never wanted to make mobile software. Mm -hmm. I mean, our company was never aimed at making mobile software. The only reason this was a consideration is because the iPhone runs on OS X and it's Cocoa-based. And and basically, programming for the iPhone is a whole lot like programming for the Mac. So we've been, you know, we've got decades worth of Mac programming experience between us here. And uh, and so programming for the iPhone comes pretty naturally. And we've got a pretty good head start. And so that that just makes sense. if Android comes along and, and you know it's an open platform, that's nice and all, but you know Windows is an open platform, and, and we don't really do much development for Windows either. It's something where you'd have to learn a whole new platform and, and get new tools for it. So in terms of our own thinking, I, I can't say, you know, oh, well, the iPhone store and, and everything is, is too restrictive, so we're going to go to Android. That's not really a threat we're making or anything like that. But mm-hmm. uh, there certainly are developers out there who have gotten a taste of mobile, uh, of mobile development, and said, you know, this is, this is great and all, but... Uh, the restrictions are too much, and maybe I am willing to to switch platforms and and to start to deal with something else uh, because I have some good mobile app ideas, and I'd rather put them out on a platform where I feel a lot more confident that they'll actually see the light of day. So it's something where I think Android's interesting to people for a couple different reasons, you know, for development reasons and also for for what it'll do to Apple and and how they'll have to react to it. From my own perspective, it's mostly interesting in as much as hopefully it'll make Apple change their game a little bit, but. I think there definitely are developers who've said, I, I've talked to developers who've said, you know, that is something we're looking at going forward and, and we'll see, you know, just how well it works. And over the next few months, as, as more devices come, come out and, and as more information comes out, we'll see about uh, creating applications for that where instead of, instead of doing application development for the iPhone. Now, uh, you've hinted in that uh, O'Reilly blog that you're working on something for the iPhone. Can you tell us anything about it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've got a couple applications that – well, we've got a few applications that we've wanted to do. Um, Macworld, you guys put together a list uh, of applications you wanted to see on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And one of those was Airfoil for the iPhone, which right. is pretty flattering for us. Airfoil, basically a tool that lets you send any audio out to the Airport Express uh, from your Mac. And so doing that from the iPhone is, is would be pretty great because you could control all the audio right from your hand instead of needing to be at your Mac. Um, that's an application we'd love to make. Uh, in terms of sending audio from either the iPod or Pandora, uh, any streaming content that's on there. Uh, the problem is that because of all the restrictions on the iPhone, we just can't do it. Yeah. Uh, all these restrictions prevent us, even if we could technically do it, which we probably could figure out a way, we'd never get into the Apple Store. Uh, so that's one that we're 
getting lots of requests for but not really able to do right now and, and just sort of have to say to people, we want to do this too. Apple pretty much won't let us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of what we are working on, uh, and neither of these have a release date or anything like that, but uh, we have a tool called Radio Shift on the Mac, which basically lets you listen to streaming content from around the world, uh, streaming radio, and record it and listen to it whenever you like. And so we'll, we're working on a listening client for the iPhone. So basically, uh, it leverages the same guide that's built into Radio Shift, which is powered by a company called Radio Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're leveraging that same guide and, and getting thousands of streams onto the iPhone so that uh, if you're out, uh, out and about and either on Wi-Fi or on, uh, or on Edge or 3G, you can uh, stream radio content from, from all over the world, whether it's local uh, or, or from you know, an entirely different country. Um, so that's, that's the one that's pretty much farthest along in development. And, uh, and we've had some good success with that uh, in terms of doing, doing the things we want. And hopefully that's something that uh, – that was something where originally I was concerned because uh, you know, it sort of does compete with the iPod and it com- competes with the iTunes Music Store. Right. Uh, this is another way for people to get content and it's not putting money into Apple's pocket. Uh, but then we saw you know, Pandora is on there. AOL Radio is on there. There's a bunch of streaming clients. So you know, hopefully when we eventually are done and, and apply this or you know, try and get approved for the store, that won't be an issue. Uh, but it is something of a concern right now. Well, yeah, and particularly given Podcaster, I guess, however, if I suppose if you don't actually download the content to the iPhone, perhaps you're okay because streaming seems to be all right. Uh, yeah, we've got other streaming apps out there. Um, but, well, that, uh, yeah, it's difficult, to figure out, it's difficult to figure out what's going on in terms of, of what's getting accepted and what's getting rejected. Is, is it the fact that Podcaster could actually download? I mean, it uses the same amount of bandwidth downloading versus streaming. That doesn't change anything. Uh, so, I mean, it's... It's re- so it's really unclear just in terms of what's being accepted, and, and that's sort of a concern for us with that application. Uh, we're far enough along that we're going to you know, work to finish it and, and get it out there. But uh, I don't know. If, uh, if this stuff had happened on day one, I don't know that we would have bothered to, to get to the point where we are right now and, and get to the point of releasing it. Yeah. Um, but then uh, we do have another application that I'm, I'm actually looking forward to. Uh, you know, a great deal. You know, I'll, I'll use Radio Shift on the iPhone as well, but uh, this is one that I'd use all the time would be uh, Airfoil speakers for the iPhone. Uh, Airfoil Speakers is an application that we have on the Mac and on Windows and on Linux, actually, that basically turns any computer into uh, an Airport Express. So if you have multiple computers set up in your house, you can send audio from one to another. Uh, it's just basically a great way to get audio around your house without, uh, without even needing you know, a, a great quantity of Airport Express units. And so basically, if you're, if you're on your own Wi-Fi network, you've got plenty of signal strength and, uh, and bandwidth, rather. Uh, and if you want to send audio to your iPhone, that would work pretty well. So that's uh, that's something that I'm I'm looking forward to, and, and we've got in development right now as far as basically just getting audio from your Mac to the iPhone, and then you can walk around the house and walk around the backyard and, and have that audio uh, just playing right out of your iPhone, streaming from your computer. Mm-hmm. So if you if you don't have all your music right on your iPhone, you can uh, you can stream to it. So that's one that uh, that'll that'll likely be a free application. Radio Shift will be a paid application, but uh, Airfoil speakers would like be, likely to be free and uh, and useful with uh, with our existing Airfoil product. Um, so that's, uh, those are the two that we're working on right now. And like I say, we've got other ideas that we'd like to do, but can't do. And, uh, and, you know, we're just sort of waiting to see how the market shakes out in the next months and years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good luck on those two, because I think they'd both be very useful. And, um, you know, given what's happened recently, I, I hope that 
<laughs> nothing interferes with that, specifically a very vague uh, rejection letter from Apple. Yeah, absolutely. For those who are listening who are interested in further discussion on this and other iPhone developer topics, as Paul mentioned, visit O'Reilly's Inside iPhone blog, where Paul often contributes his thoughts. And thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. That wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by MYOB, small business accounting and point-of-sale software, helping you to mind your own business smarter. I'd like to thank Philip Michaels, Jackie Dove, various and sundry Adobe personnel, Paul Kafasis, and, of course, you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. If you like what you have to say, we'll play it on the air. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, and technology news, views, and information at Macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you around.